BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in the wilds of Connecticut. This is Obscure, the podcast in which I read Jude the Obscure out loud and comment on it as I go. And Obscure this morning just had a tremendous, a tremendous boost when I appeared on the Today Show, the nine o'clock hour, which is the less popular hour because everybody's already at work. I was promoting my new children's book entitled I'm Worried, available on Amazon.com and wherever fine books are sold. And I'm Worried is the latest in a series of books about emotions. The first is called I'm Bored. The second is I'm Sad. This is I'm Worried. It stars a little girl, a flamingo, and a potato. Or as they would say in Jude's corner, potato. But I was on there promoting I'm Worried. And they asked about Obscure. And so I told them. And I can only imagine the millions upon millions of downloads from today's show watchers who have a keen interest in Victorian literature, specifically late Victorian literature by Tom Hardy. So by the time this episode airs, I fully expect to be topping the podcast charts and probably rolling in obscene amounts of podcast money. Now, look, you and I both know I didn't get into this game for the coin. That's never what it's been about for me, except for the fact that I would love nothing more than to make money doing this. But obscure will no longer be obscure is what I'm saying. It will be now popular, famous, acclaimed, notorious. You will be among a handful of early adopters. And you can say, I listened to Obscure before Michael was reading Jude the Obscure in front of packed audiences at Wembley Stadium. You, dear listeners, will have that privilege afforded to very few. And that will feel very good for you. You will look back over the epic of your life and say to yourself, I may not have done anything else correctly in my life, but I started listening to Obscure before Michael went on the Today Show and mentioned it. And you will take great comfort and pride in that. Somebody else looking uh, back across the epic of his own young life is the son of Jude Folly and his first wife, Arabella, who has come from Australia to take up residence in a new household, the household of his biological father, Jude, and Jude's, I don't even want to say common-law wife, I don't want to say his girlfriend. I don't really even want to say his lover. His live-in companion, Sue Bridehead, who has now acquiesced to marriage and has also acquiesced to taking in this boy rather unexpectedly. Both unexpected that the boy even exists because neither of them knew and unexpectedly that she would so readily agree to take in this waif. 
there was an almost an alacrity in the way that she said, why, of course, we'll take in this boy. In the previous episode, I described my own theory on it, which is that she wishes to redeem herself, redeem her own humanity in her own eyes by loving a creature the way that she wishes to love another. And we know that she's incapable of loving Jude or Phillotson or her first love in that way, but perhaps she can love this boy. So the boy is on the train. He has come from Australia. He's now passing through all these towns. It's late at night. He is, he seems at best wary. And I'll pick up the book again. This is night. When the other travelers closed their eyes, which they did one by one, even the kitten curling itself up in the basket. This is a little tabby cat that he had seen. Weary of its too circumscribed play, the boy remained just as before. He then seemed to be doubly awake, like an enslaved and dwarfed divinity, sitting passive and regarding his companions as if he saw their whole rounded lives rather than their immediate figures. This was Arabella's boy. With her usual carelessness, she had postponed writing to Jude about him till the eve of his landing when she could absolutely postpone no longer, though she had known for weeks of his approaching arrival and had, as she truly said, visited Aldbrickham mainly to reveal the boy's existence and his near homecoming to Jude." This very day on which she had received her former husband's answer at some time in the afternoon, the child reached the London docks, and the family in whose charge he had come, having put him into a cab for Lambeth and directed the cabman to his mother's house, bade him goodbye and went their way. On his arrival at the Three Horns, Arabella had looked him over with an expression that was as good as saying, you are very much what I expected you to be, had given him a good meal, a little money, and late as it was getting, dispatched him to Jude by the next train. (laughs) Her son has just come from Australia. She gives him a few bucks, some Kraft macaroni and cheese, and says, all right, off with you. <laughs> it's his mother. He hasn't seen her in years. <laughs> and she, she cannot make the time of day for him. Horrendous. Just horrendous, Arabella. So she puts him on the next train, wishing her husband, Cartlett, who was out, not to see him. Well, perhaps Cartlett doesn't even know he exists. The train reached Aldbrickham, and the boy was deposited on the lonely platform beside his box. The collector took his ticket, and with a meditative sense of the unfitness of things, asked him where he was going by himself at that time of night. Going to Spring Street, said the little one impassively. Wait, should he have an Australian accent? Which I can't do, by the way, and won't even pretend to be able to do. But for the sake of fun, uh, Australian? Going to Spring Street? No, that's terrible. Uh, put a barbie. Put a barbie. Going and earn Aussie. Minute work. Minute work. Dingo. Koala. Going to Spring Street? No, terrible. It's just terrible. All right, he has no accent. Minute work. (laughs) My references for Australia are dingoes and men at work. Why, that's a long way. Ah, well, why, that's a long way from here. Most out in the country and the folks will be gone to bed. I've got to go there. You must have a fly for your box. No, I must walk. Oh, well, you better leave your box here and send for it. There's a bus goes halfway, but you'll have to walk the rest. I am not afraid. Why didn't your friends come to meety? I suppose they didn't know I was coming. Who's your friends? Mother didn't wish me to say. (laughs) Jesus. All I can do then is to take charge of this. Now walk as fast as you can. Saying nothing further, the boy came out into the street, looking round to see that nobody followed or observed him. 
When he had walked some little distance, he asked for the street of his destination. He was told to go straight on quite into the outskirts of the place. So you've got this little boy uh, just walking (laughs) by himself in the middle of the night, a town he's never been to before. His father uh, and girlfriend have not come to meet him. They didn't know he was arriving on that day. His mother has deposited him on this train. He's left his suitcase with the conductor and he's, you know, this this is just not the kind of thing that would happen today, I think, in America anyway, or or England or, or really anywhere. You don't just have children wandering the streets if they've just gotten off a train and they're they're going to meet somebody. I mean, if look, if they're begging for change and chicle and they're selling pencils and whatever, yeah, then you have them wandering the streets. That's what nobody's better for wandering the streets than beggar children. But he is not a beggar child. He is just a sad Australian boy. The child fell into a steady mechanical creep, which had in it an impersonal quality, the movement of the wave or of the breeze or of the cloud. He followed his directions literally, without an inquiring gaze at anything. It could have been seen that the boy's ideas of life were different from those of the local boy's. Children began with detail and learn up to the general. They begin with the contiguous and gradually comprehend the universal. The boy seemed to have begun with the generals of life and never to have concerned himself with the particulars. To him, the houses, the willows, the obscure fields beyond were apparently regarded not as brick residences, pollards, meadows, but as human dwellings in the abstract, vegetation, and the wide, dark world." He found the way to the little lane and knocked at the door of Jude's house. Jude had just retired to bed, and Sue was about to enter her chamber adjoining when she heard the knock and came down. "'Is this where father lives?' asked the child. "'Who?' "'Mr. Folly, that's his name.' She ran up to Jude's room and told him, and he hurried down as soon as he could, though to her impatience he seemed long. "'What is it he? So soon?' she asked as Jude came. She scrutinized the child's features and suddenly went away into the little sitting-room adjoining. Jude lifted the boy to a level with himself, keenly regarded him with gloomy tenderness, and telling him he would have been met if they had known of his coming so soon, set him provisionally in a chair whilst he went to look for Sue, whose supersensitiveness was disturbed as he knew. He found her in the dark, bending over an armchair. He enclosed her with his arm, and putting his face by hers, whispered, What's the matter? What Arabella says is true. I see you in him. Well, that's one thing in my life, as it should be at any rate, but the other half of him is she, and that's what I can't bear. But I ought to. I'll try to get used to it. Yes, I ought. Ugh. I'm going to go on and then and then I'll yell at her. Jealous little Sue, I withdraw all my remarks about your sexlessness. Never mind. Time may write things. And Sue, darling, I have an idea. We'll educate and train him with a view to the university. What I couldn't accomplish in my own person, perhaps I can carry out through him. They are making it easier for poor students now, you know. Oh, you dreamer, said she, and holding his hand, returned to the child with him. The boy looked at her as she had looked at him. Is it you who's my real mother at last, he inquired. Why, do I look like your father's wife? Well, yes, except he seems fond of you and you of him. Can I call you mother? Then a yearning came over the child, and he began to cry. Sue thereupon could not refrain from instantly doing likewise, being a harp which the least wind of emotion from another's heart could make to vibrate as readily as a radical stir in her own. You may call me mother if you wish to, my poor dear, she said, bending her cheek against his to hide her tears. 
So the boy comes. Sue, having opened her heart to him, immediately goes into the other room and basically bends over the chair like she's going to puke because, oh my God, she can't believe that it is as Arabella said. When in fairness, she's right to be dubious. But that being said... Uh, he looks like Jude. He looks like Arabella. She can't believe it. She's going to she's going to she's going to boot. I'm going to boot, she says. She didn't say I'm going to boot. But, you know, that's the impression we get. Jude comes in. He's like, what's your fucking problem? She's like, I can't believe it's really your kid. I'm going to boot. And he's like, well, yeah. What did you think? Sue, Sue was hoping that this was just like uh, like that tabby kitten, just some kitten that Arabella found in the street in Australia and had her parents send up here. Some some child of nobody that Sue could welcome as her own. But seeing that Arabella is imprinted on her features, on his features, she has a mini little freak out. Jude is like, uh, Jude's like, oh my God, I can't believe you're doing this. I said that you were sexless, but no, clearly you are not. You are jealous like all women. He's making a little, you know, dig at ladies. And he says, never mind. Hey, I have an idea. Why don't why don't I live my entire life vicariously through this child? That will be healthy for the child, right? We'll send the kid to university and he'll do everything that I could not. And Sue's like, yeah, good idea. They go out. The kid says, can I call you mommy? <laughs> Will you be my mother? Sue's like, yeah, no problem. And now here we are. So, you know, this is, I mean, this is just setting itself up to be a Freudian nightmare. These three people, you've got basically uh, like Tiger Woods, father saying, my boy's going to be a pro golfer. And Sue going, call me mother. And the boy saying, I have a family now. And, you know. It's all kind of Capra-esque in the moment, but it's going to end, as I have indicated all along, with some kind of murder-suicide. So we have that to look forward to after just a, a wee little break here on Obscure. We're back. We're going to pick up with our newly formed family, Jude, Sue, Jude's love child from Arabella. Uh, although I guess I, I guess it's not really a love child because uh, they were married at the time and there was really no love. And Jude is talking to the child who just came from the train. What's this round your neck? Asked Jude with affected calmness. The key of my box that's at the station. They bustled about and got him some supper and made him up a temporary bed where he soon fell asleep. Both went and looked at him as he lay. He called you mother two or three times before he dropped off, murmured Jude. Wasn't it odd that he should have wanted to? Well, it was significant, said Sue. There's more for us to think about in that one little hungry heart than in all the stars of the sky. I suppose, dear, we must pluck up courage and get that ceremony over. It is no use struggling against the current, and I feel myself getting intertwined with my kind. Oh, Jude, you'll love me dearly, won't you, afterwards? I do want to be kind to this child and to be a mother to him, and our adding the legal form to our marriage might make it easier for me. And that is the end of chapter three and part the fifth, so... Arabella, I mean, Sue has just, you know, she said, well, she has maintained all along that if they are to marry, Jude will no longer love her because marriage itself is so hideously deformed. The institution itself so corrupts those who inhabit it that he will no longer love her. But now with the addition of this boy, to their duo. They have become a trio. And she says, it will make it easier if we are wed so that I can be this boy's mother properly. And then she says something interesting. She says, I feel myself my, myself getting intertwined with my kind, meaning she is feeling for, for perhaps the first time the way she believes women ought to feel. 
she is feeling the stirrings of her own femininity. Now, of course, we know that Sue is very much of her kind. She is very feminine. She is very much a woman in many ways, but she feels herself to be lacking something that other women have. Um, And we have discussed at some length what those things are in previous episodes and my own theory of the subject. But now she recognizes in herself this maternal yearning, something that perhaps she had never experienced before. She sees this, this little boy asleep in his temporary bed, and she wants to hasten the marriage along. Chapter four. Their next and second attempt thereat was more deliberately made, meaning marriage, because once they had gone before, they had tried to get married before and then she turned away. Though it was begun on the morning following the singular child's arrival at their home. Him they found to be in the habit of sitting silent, his quaint and weird face set, and his eyes resting on things they did not see in the substantial world. So he sees dead people. Well, you know, he's like that boy in the the sixth sense. He just sits quietly and looks at shit because he's creepy. His face is like the tragic mask of Melpamine, said Sue. What is your name, dear? (laughs) Did you tell us? They didn't didn't even give him a name. Uh, And the boy says, Little Father Time is what they always called me. It is a nickname because I look so aged, they say. And you talk so too, said Sue tenderly. It is strange, Jude, that these preternaturally old boys almost always come from new countries. But what were you christened? I never was. Why was that? Because if I died in damnation, twould save the expense of a Christian funeral. <laughs> uh, I mean... So they didn't, they didn't give him, they didn't christen him because if they did, then Arabella's parents would have had to have given him a Christian funeral if he should die. Therefore, they just thought, well, let's save a few bucks here. We'll just call him little father time. Right. And that'll be that. Right. Because, because, you know, chances are he's just going to drop that anyway. He's going to get rubella or something, or he'll get bitten by a poisonous Aussie snake or something. And, you know, what are we going to do? Spend 30 bucks on a funeral? Come on. Come on. He's not our kid. He's our grandkid and a bastard at that sort of. Okay, so he says, which would save the expense of a Christian funeral. Oh, your name is not Jude, then, said his father with some disappointment. Uh, the boy shook his head. Never hear on it. Never heard on it. Of course not, said Sue quickly, since she was hating you all the time. We'll have him christened, said Jude, and privately to Sue, the day we are married. Yet the advent of the child disturbed him. Hmm. Well, now Jude is getting his own feathers ruffled over something, though what we do not yet know. Their position lent them shyness, and having an impression that a marriage at a superintendent registrar's office was more private than an ecclesiastical one, they decided to avoid a church this time. Both Sue and Jude together went to the office of the district to give notice. They had become such companions that they could hardly do anything of importance except in each other's company. Jude Foley signed the form of notice, Sue looking over his shoulder and watching his hand as it traced the words. As she read the four-square undertaking never before seen by her, into which her own and Jude's names were inserted, and by which that very volatile essence, their love for each other, was supposed to be made permanent, her face seemed to grow painfully apprehensive. Names and surnames of the parties, they were to be parties now, not lovers, she thought. Condition a horrid idea. Rank your occupation, 
age, dwelling at, length of residence, church or building in which the marriage is to be solemnized, district and county in which the parties respectively dwell. It spoils the sentiment, doesn't it, she said on their way home. It seems making a more sordid business of it even than signing the contract in a vestry. There is a little poetry in a church, but we'll try to get through with it, dearest now. We will. For what man is he that hath betrothed a wife and hath not taken her? Let him go and return unto his house, lest he die in the battle and another man take her. So said the Jewish lawgiver. Who's that? Alan Dershowitz? 44. I imagine it's Jesus, but maybe it's Moses. Let's see. Or maybe it's David. It could even be David. They probably wouldn't say Jesus is the Jewish lawgiver. Let's say it's David. It's Deuteronomy. And I'm not going to look up who said it. How you know the scriptures, Jude, you really ought to have been a person. I can only quote profane writers. Well, yeah, because you're a perv. During the interval, before the issuing of the certificate, Sue, in her housekeeping errands, sometimes walked past the office and, furtively glancing in, saw affixed to the wall the notice of the proposed clinch to their union. She could not bear its aspect. Coming after her previous experience of matrimony, all the romance of their attachment seemed to be starved away by placing her present case in the same category. She was usually leading little father time by the hand, and fancied that people thought him hers, and regarded the intended ceremony as the patching up of an old error. Meanwhile, Jude decided to link his present with his past in some slight degree by inviting to the wedding the the only person remaining on earth who was associated with his early life at Marygreen, the aged widow Mrs. Edlin, who had been his great-aunt's friend and nurse in her last illness. He hardly expected that she would come, but she did, bringing singular presents in the form of apples, jam, brass snuffers, an ancient pewter dish, a warming pan, and an enormous bag of goose feathers towards a bed. She was allotted the spare room in Jude's house, whither she retired early, and where they could hear her through the ceiling below, honestly saying the Lord's Prayer in a loud voice as the rubric directed. As, however, she could not sleep, and discovered that Sue and Jude were still sitting up, it being in fact only ten o'clock, she dressed herself again and came down, and they all sat by the fire till a late hour, Father Time included, though, as he never spoke, they were hardly conscious of him. Well, I bain't set against marrying as your great aunt was, said the widow, and I hope twill be a jocund wedding for ye in all respects this time. Nobody can hope it more knowing what I do of your families, which is more, I suppose, than any one else now living, for they have been unlucky that way, God knows. <laughs> Sue breathed uneasily. They was always good-hearted people, too. Wouldn't kill a fly if they knowed it, continued the wedding guest. But things happened to thwart em, and if everything wasn't vidy, they were upset. No doubt that's how he that the tale is told of came to what it did, if he were one of your family. What was that, said Jude? Well, that tale, you know. He that was gibbeted just on the brow of the hill by the brown house hung. He was hung, not far from the milestone between Mary Green and Alfredston, where the other road branches off. But Lord, twas in my grandfather's time, and it mayn't have been one of your folk at all. I know where the gibbet is said to have stood very well, murmured Jude, but I never heard of this. What, did this man, my ancestor in Sue's, kill his wife? Twere not that exactly. She ran away from him with their child. Uh Uh-oh, guys, we're getting foreshadowing. We're getting foreshadowing. If I've ever seen foreshadowing before, I've seen it now. Twere not that exactly she ran away from him with their child to her friends. And while she was there, the child died. (laughs) 
I mean, I mean, okay, so we're getting, I mean, we're, we're quickly approaching murder-suicide territory, at least in uh, uh, two generations previous, right? In, in, the, in the days of Fowley's past, when the legend of the bad Fowley marriage was born. The child died. He wanted the body to bury it where his people lay, but she wouldn't give it up. Her husband then came in the night with a cart and broke into the house to steer the coffin away, but he was catched, and being obstinate wouldn't tell what he broke in for. They brought it in burglary, and that's why he was hanged and gibbeted on Brown House Hall. His wife went mad after he was dead, but it meant be true that he belonged to ye more than to me. So she's saying, I mean, I'm, I'm just repeating what I heard. Maybe it's not true at all. Who knows? Maybe it's my relative, not yours. Don't even worry about it. This is, it's probably not even a thing, right? That just coincidentally, you're here with a child, you're getting married. There's a child here with you, a weird child. Your wife's weird. Everybody's weird. And it probably wouldn't, it, probably nothing like that will happen to you. Anyway, here's some goose feathers. A small, slow voice rose from the shade of the fireside, as if out of the earth. If I was you, mother, I wouldn't marry father. (laughs) My God, he's Damien. It came from little time, and they started, for they had forgotten him. Oh, it is only a tale, said Sue cheeringly. After this exhilarating tradition from the widow on the eve of the solemnization, they rose and wishing their guest good night, retired. I mean, what the hell? (laughs) What the hell? If I were you, I wouldn't marry him, mother. (laughs) So, first of all, she's not his mother. Right. And she's referring to Jude as basically, you know, her weird friend that she brings around every now and again, some dude from a biker gang. And she's trying and he's trying to warn her off marrying his father because of the story that the widow has told. And I'm sorry, the whole thing's creepy. It's just creepy. So I'm trying to understand this nickname, Father Time, Little Father Time, because we are meant to understand from our, the, the base description of this kid that he looks back across time with detachment, that he himself, like Sue, comes from a place and, uh, 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 or I should say, he comes from, he comes from out of time. Right, he appears out of the blue, which in a sense is out of time, from a place around the globe, which is in a sense out of time. If we are to believe Einstein, that Einstein, that space and time are intimately linked, and he shows up and he doesn't sleep and he's weird, right? And he uh, castigates the who's who would laugh, as he did in the last episode. And he wanders through the streets without anything. He's a specter. And they call him Little Father Time because he because they say he looks weird and aged. He's just a weird kid. He's Damien from the Omen. And I think and then and then when he only speaks up, when the widow Edlin talks about this story from Folly Past. And he speaks like a demon to warn them of what will happen if they should proceed with this marriage. Marriage, he seems to be calling from the grave of his own great-grandfather, will be your undoing. Do not go through with this. Do not fulfill this prophecy. The next morning, Sue, who... (laughs) whose nervousness intensified with the hours, took Jude privately into the sitting room before starting. Jude, I want you to kiss me as a lover incorporeally, 
she said, tremulously nestling up to him with damp lashes. It won't be ever like this any more, will it? I wish we hadn't begun the business, but I suppose we must go on. How horrid that story was last night. It spoilt my thoughts of today. It makes me feel as if a tragic doom overhung our family as it did the house of Atreus. Or the house of Jeroboam, said the quantum theologian. <laughs> what? <sighs> Here's a little footnote 46. Da, 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 da. The hell is a quantum, Q-U-O-N-D-A-M, quantum theologian. Okay, so Atreus and Jeroboam, both the classical and the Old Testament traditions offering examples of the doom of a family. Well, yeah, we figured, I knew that just by context, but now I have to look up quantum. Quantum. It is a Latin word. That once was... And this is how it's pronounced. Probably quantum, I would guess. Quantum. Yeah, quantum. Could have just said former. Didn't need to say quantum, Tom. <sighs> okay, so they're, they're predicting a tragic doom at the house of Atreus, the house of Jeroboam. And so Sue says, yes, and it seems awful temerity in us two to go marrying. I'm going to vow to you in the same... Oh, hold on. Hello. Hi, how you doing? I'm well, how are you? All right. Uh, something terrible happened. Uh, so, uh, uh unre- well, related to the phone call, but not anything, not the content of the phone call, which is that I had a phone conversation. I hung up the phone. I finished recording the podcast. I sent it in. Turns out, uh, I didn't pick up the recording again. So the, the, the genius shit that I talked about after the phone call was lost for all time. So now I got to go back and reread. Look, I said I was going to read Jude the Obscure. I didn't say I was going to read it twice. Now I've got to read it twice. At least this section that got lost. I don't remember what. (sighs) So, you know, part of the deal with this is that I don't cheat. I don't look ahead. I don't know what's coming. But for this section now, I know what's coming. And it's not that much because we were already pretty far into the episode, but it's enough. And it's annoying to me that this happened. So if I'm aggrieved for the rest of the episode, that's the reason. So I'm, I'm going to take a calming break now uh, on purpose, and then we will finish properly. Hi, I'm back. Let's give this a shot. So Sue says, it seems awful temerity in us two to go marrying. I'm going to vow to you in the same words I vowed into my other husband and you to me in the same as you used to your other wife, regardless of the deterrent lesson we were taught by those experiences. So we're going to, we're just going to make the same mistake that we already made, right? Because we're idiots and we're assholes. So we're just going to do the same the same thing that we did before, because we haven't learned shit. If you are uneasy, I am made unhappy, said he, because that's always his default thing. Like, if it upsets you, dear, I won't do it. I had hoped you would feel quite joyful, but if you don't, you don't. It is no use pretending it is a dismal business to you, and that makes it so to me. So they're saying, you know, if you don't want to get married, we won't get married. He's been saying this all along. And she's like, yeah, but I got to do it because now I feel like a lady. And, you know, you make me feel like a natural woman. It is unpleasantly like that other morning. That's all she murmured. Let us go on now. They started arm in arm for the office aforesaid, no witness accompanying them except for the widow Eldon. 
The day was chilly and dull, foreshadowing, and a clammy fog blew through the town from Royal Towered Tim. Foreshadowing, on the steps of the office there were the muddy footmarks of people who had entered, and in the entry were damp umbrellas. So they're going, you know, again, like Tom Hardy, not much for subtlety, right? So he's painting the scene for us, chilly and dull, a clammy fog, muddy footprints, like everything's bad. Everything is bad about marriage, is what Tom seems to be saying. It's what he's been saying for the entirety of the book. Within the office, several persons were gathered, and our couple perceived that a marriage between a soldier and a young woman was just in progress. Well, that's that's nice. Sue, Jude, and the widow stood in the background while this was going on, Sue reading the notices of marriage on the wall. The room was a dreary place to two of their temperament, though to its usual frequenters it doubtless seemed ordinary enough. Law books in musty calf covered one wall, and elsewhere were post office directories and other books of reference. Papers in packets tied with red tape were pigeonholed around, and some iron safes filled a recess, while the bare wood floor was, like the doorstep, stained by previous visitors. Yes, marriage stains us all. The soldier was sullen and reluctant, the bride sad and timid. She was soon, obviously, to become a mother, and she had a black eye. I Yes, I read this a week ago. It made me laugh then. It makes me laugh now. Not because domestic violence is funny. Don't get all upset at me. But because Hardy paints such a grim and dismal picture of marriage. Their little business was soon done, and the twain and their friends straggled out, one of the witnesses saying casually to Jude and Sue in passing, as if he had known them before, See the couple just come in? Ha ha! That fella's just out of jail this morning. She met him at the jail gates and brought him straight here. She's paying for everything. Yes, they're all paying for everything, aren't they? Aren't we all paying for everything, ultimately? I'm paying for screwing up the recording. Sue turned her head and saw an ill-favored man closely cropped with a broad-faced, pockmarked woman on his arm, ruddy with liquor and the satisfaction of being on the brink of a gratified desire. They jocosely, jocosely, happily saluted the outgoing couple and went forward in front of Jude and Sue, whose diffidence was increasing. The latter drew back and turned to her lover, her mouth shaping itself like that of a child about to give way to grief. Jude, I don't like it here. I wish we hadn't come. The place gives me the horrors. It seems so unnatural as the climax of our love. I wish it had been at church. If it had to be at all, it is not so vulgar there. Dear little girl, said Jude, how troubled and pale you look. It must be performed here now, I suppose. No, perhaps not necessarily. He spoke to the clerk and came back. No, we need not marry here or anywhere unless we like even now, he said. We can be married in a church, if not with the same certificate with another he'll give us, I think. Anyhow, let us go out till you are calmer, dear, and I too, and talk it over. So once again, you know, they're dancing right up to the line here, dancing right up to the threshold, uh, but he cannot yet carry her over into the new room of their marriage because they keep backing out. You know, they get right up, they, you know, he, he, they, 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 they throw on their wedding clothes and they look real nice and they got the widow Edlin there and everything else. 
And he picks her up and he's like, all right, all right, bride, I'm going to carry you right over to tre- the threshold here. And then we'll be husband and wife. But they, they, they get right up to it and you can't, they can't quite do it. So he says, no, we're not going to do it. And, and we'll, we'll leave. We'll talk it over. They went out stealthily and guiltily as if they had committed a misdemeanor, closing the door without noise and telling the widow who had remained in the entry to go home and await them that they would call in any casual passers as witnesses if necessary. When in the street, they turned into an unfrequented side alley where they walked up and down as they had done long ago in the market house at Melchester. Melchester. Now, darling, what shall we do? We are making a mess of it, it strikes me. Still, anything that pleases you will please me. But you, dearest, I am worrying you. You wanted it to be there, didn't you? Well, to tell the truth, when I got inside, I felt as if I didn't care much about it. The place depressed me almost as much as it did you. It was ugly. And then I thought of what you had said this morning as to whether we ought. They walked on vaguely till she paused and her little voice began anew. It seems so weak, too, to vacillate like this, and yet how much better than to act rashly a second time. How terrible that scene was to me, the expression in that flabby woman's face, leading her on to give herself to that jailbird, not for a few hours as she would, but for a lifetime as she must and the other poor soul, to escape a nominal shame which was owing to the weakness of her character, degrading herself to the real shame of bondage to a tyrant who scorned her, a man whom to avoid forever was her only chance of salvation. This is our parish church, isn't it? This is where it would have to be if we did it in the usual way. A service or something seems to be going on. So they're walking up and down. They come to the church. They look inside. Something's going on. Jude went up and looked in at the door. Why? It is a wedding here too, he said. Everybody seems to be on our tack today. Sue said she she supposed it was because Lent was just over when there was always a crowd of marriages. And I don't know if Thomas Hardy is making a joke there or not. I think it might be the subtlest of jokes where he's saying people give things up for Lent. And then when Lent is over, they have a pent up need. And to fulfill that need, they get married. I don't know if, if Tom is being funny or nay. I mean, there have not been a lot of um, nuggets of merriment scattered across these pages, at least intentional. I think there have been some few, though. Uh, I'm going to say that he's, he's, he's just being a little bit funny there. Or, or, or there's a something about... Uh, Lent that I don't understand. Let us listen, she said, and find how it feels to us when performed in a church. They stepped in and entered a back seat and watched the proceedings at the altar. The contracting couple appeared to belong to the well-to-do middle class, and the wedding altogether was of ordinary prettiness and interest. They could see, and this is all new to me, I I think I stopped before this earlier, they could see the flowers tremble in the bride's hand, even at that distance, and could hear her mechanical murmur of words whose meaning her brain seemed to gather not at all under the pressure of her self-consciousness. Sue and Jude listened, and deservedly saw themselves in time past going through the same form of self-committal. So here they are witnessing uh, a coupling of two from a slightly higher station in life than their own, and even so, excuse me, even so, they recognize themselves. They see themselves doing the same mechanical murmurings as the couple before them, owing to their self-consciousness. In other words, the couple knows not what they are entering into, just as Sue and Jude felt that they themselves did not know what they were entering into. And here they are thinking of doing it again. It is not the same to her, poor thing, as it would be to me doing it over again with my present knowledge, Sue whispered. You see, they are fresh to it and take the proceedings as a matter of course. 
But having been awakened to its solemnity as we have, or at least as I have by experience, into my own two squeamish feelings, perhaps sometimes it really does seem immoral in me to go and undertake the same thing again with open eyes. Coming in here and seeing this has frightened me from a church wedding as much as the other did from a registry one. We are a weak, tremulous pair, Jude, and what others may feel confident in, I feel doubts of, my being proof against the sordid conditions of a business contract again. Then they tried to laugh and went on debating in whispers the object lesson before them. And Jude said he also thought they were both too thin-skinned, that they ought never to have been born. (laughs) I mean, let's not get carried away, dude. All right? Let's not get carried away. I mean, I mean, you know, the lessons of Aunt Drusilla now echoing in the belfries of his mind, we ought not to have been born. Come on, man. You, I mean, the relationship isn't perfect, but you have this lady that you love. She loves you in, in, in her own way. Now you've got this kid. You know, things are not as terrible as all that. Uh, they ought not to have been born, much less have come together for the most preposterous of all joint adventures for them, matrimony. His betrothed shuddered and asked him earnestly if he indeed felt that they ought not to go in cold blood and sign that life undertaking again. It is awful if you think we have found ourselves not strong enough for it, and knowing this, are proposing to perjure ourselves, she said. I fancy I do think it since you ask me, said Jude. Remember, I'll do it if you wish, own darling. While she hesitated, he went on to confess that, though he thought they ought to be able to do it, he felt checked by the dread of incompetency just as she did. From their peculiarities, perhaps, because they were unlike other people. We are horribly sensitive. That's really what's the matter with us, Sue, he declared. I fancy more are like us than we think. Well, I don't know. Um, This is Jude talking because it sounded sounded to me like me saying, well, I don't know, because that is something I would say. Well, I don't know. But I do think uh, there are many people who are sensitive like Jude and Sue. And I also think it is a trap to think the things you are feeling are unique unto yourself. They almost never are. In fact, I suspect they never are. We only have so many colors from which to paint our lives. All those colors have been seen before. You are as likely to experience some unique thing as you are to invent a new color. That can be perhaps depressing to some, but think about all the paintings that have been made with the colors that we have. Some terrific paintings, right? There's the one with the kid and the policeman, you know, he's he, he's at the soda fountain and he ran away. He's got a little bindle and the policeman's like, hey, it's going to be all right. There's that painting. That's a good one. Well, I don't know. The intention of the contract is good and right for many, no doubt. But in our case, it may defeat its own ends because we are the queer sort of people we are. Folk in whom domestic ties of a forced kind snuff out cordiality and spontaneousness. uh, Sue still held that there was not much queer or exceptional in them, that all were so. She's saying the same thing I'm saying. She says, everybody's getting to feel as we do. We are a little beforehand, that's all. In 50, 100 years, the descendants of these two will act and feel worse than we. Well, yes, true. They will see weltering humanity still more vividly than we do now as, and then she's quoting some poem, shapes like our own selves, hideously multiplied. All right, that's a 48. Let's see what that comes from. Uh, Sounds like Shakespeare. Hey, Shakespeare. 48. That's from Shelley. Shelley's line, the revolt of Islam, all shapes like mine own self hideously multiplied Uh, and we'll be afraid to reproduce them jude says what a terrible line of poetry though i have felt it myself about my fellow creatures at morbid times thus 
they murmured on till Sue said more brightly, well, the general question is not our business, and why should we plague ourselves about it? However different our reasons are, we come to the same conclusion that for us particular too, an irrevocable oath is risky. Then Jude, let us go home without killing our dream. Yes, how good you are, my friend. You give way to all my whims. They accord very much with my own, says Jude. So let's end the episode right there. They have decided yet again not to marry. And what will the consequences of that be? We do not know. They are stepping outside the bounds of society. They are being their queer selves, as Jude describes them. They are doing something unexpected and altogether unorthodox in this constricted land of theirs, of Wessex the fictional county of Wessex in Tom Hardy's England. And, uh, but, they're, but now there's a new wrinkle, which is that they are to parent this child as, as, uh, as singles, right? As just a, an unmarried couple. I don't, I don't know. I don't understand Victorian England enough to have an opinion about what that would be like for them if that is going to be awkward. You know, when they go to Chuck E. Cheese and they say, so is it, is it just you and your wife and your kid? And, and then Jude has to say, oh, no, no, we're not we're not, you know, we're not married. And, and then they say, well, you can't, you can't play skee-ball if you're not married. That's just not the way we do things here at Chuck E. Cheese. We are a family establishment. Maybe that's what it will be. Just a life of humiliation, a life of exile and exodus as they wander through Wessex, like Jews in the desert trying to find their way to an oasis of domesticity, tranquility, and some semblance of family. I don't know. What will be the results of this? Is it really such a question? But one thing that Sue did get right is that, or really Tom got right, in 50, 100 years' time, descendants of these two will act and feel worse than we. No shit. We are a depressed lot, and I think the more material goods we have, the more depressed we become. Marriage rates are falling, as Sue predicted, particularly among those in their class, in the lower classes. People don't see the point of getting married. Why should they? What benefit is it of, what benefit does it hold for them? Uh, people are having kids out of wedlock, although I think those rates have been going down. But people just aren't, you know, or they're having kids but not getting married. You know, they're doing that kind of thing. People's participation in religion has been falling in this country. And I think I would imagine in England as well. Um, We are becoming a more secularized society. And though the atheist liberal in me should cheer that, at the same time, it's hard for me to not recognize that I think we are more miserable than we were then. Although the people in Hardy's day don't seem all that happy. So I don't know. Maybe we are just destined as a species to be morose. Maybe that is just our fate. We are a yearning species, and it is our own self-consciousness, that is consciousness of self, that gives us all of our power and robs us of all of our joy. You know, Jack Jack sitting here next to me, he doesn't give a shit, right? You know, you, you rub his belly. He's like, yeah, this is great. You know, you give him a, a little treat at the end of the day. Terrific. If it's rainy out, and he doesn't want to go out, then you see his sad face and he takes a poop in the corner. There is nothing more for him. There is no consciousness of self in the same way that we have consciousness of self. There is some yearning. If I come downstairs in the morning at a certain time and I am dressed in a certain manner and perhaps I am holding my sneakers and socks, he understands that we may be going for a W-A-L-K. I cannot say it out loud because he will get excited. And a yearning is, 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 uh, is lit in him in excitement. But just on a day-to-day basis, he's happy to just chill. People don't have that. And it is the cause of our greatness and our misery. So, all that to say, I fucked up that, that recording. In the end, look, maybe it made a better podcast. I don't know, because I don't even remember what I said last time. But here we are. You've got an extra long episode. And uh, I may just go back to back. I may just push stop on this and record the next one. Why not? 
So what will be the consequences of Jude and Sue's decision? Find out in another anticipatory episode. That is a dumb adjective. Of Jude. Oh, no. Of Obscure. Until then, I wish you adieu. Obscure is brought to you by Earwolf. For more information on Obscure, visit our show page at Earwolf.com and subscribe, won't you, in your favorite podcast app like Stitcher or Apple Podcasts so you do not miss one exciting episode of Jude the Obscure. Obscure is produced by Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and Robin Lynn who also mixed and edited today's show with music composed by Craig Wedron. Special thanks to everyone at Earwolf, especially Chris Bannon, Colin Anderson, and the Earwolf engineer team of Brett Morris, Sam Kiefer, and Ryan Connor. If you would like information about sponsoring our show, email hello at midroll.com. From the wilds of Connecticut, I'm Michael Ian Black. <laughs>